Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Sandra Sutcher about trust between boards and the people they govern. First, let me tell you about Sandra. Sandra is an internationally recognised trust researcher and Professor of Management Practice at Harvard Business School. She studies how organisations build trust and the vital role leaders play in the process. Before joining Harvard, she was a business executive for 20 years, serving on corporate and not-for-profit boards, and has been the chair of the Better Business Bureau. An advisor to the Edelman Trust Barometer, her research has been featured in several national publications. Sandra is also the author of The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It and Regain It. And a shout out to Alice Fung for sharing the book with me in the Take On Board community recently and prompting me to reach out to Sandra to have this discussion. And thank you, you, Sandra, for taking the call. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Sandra. Thank you so much. It is fabulous to have you here because trust is so key. But... As always, before we dig into that conversation about trust, I would love to initially just dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me a story about young Sandra that tells us how we got to where we are today? Wow. I'm trying to censor several stories. (laughs) Uh, um, So here's one. It's kind of, uh, it's probably not one I would pick if I had even more time to think about it. Uh, So I was about 11 and I decided that I had to start reading Shakespeare. As you do it as an 11 year I'm not sure those were the decisions I was making at 11, but well done to you for doing so. And, uh, and so, and I think my logic was, I'm an educated person. I'm supposed to be informed. He's supposed to be a great writer. And I should be exposed early to his work. So I have always been very curious Uh, kind of intellectually ambitious. Uh, And so ideas excite me. They always have. And and so for me, it was like 11, Shakespeare, absolutely. Let's kind of go for it. So so how about that? Does that work? That is fantastic. And I'm guessing the answer to this will be yes, but let me test it anyway. So you decided you were going to read Shakespeare. Where did you start? And, you know, I'm assuming you didn't work your way through the whole collection. Fair enough. I did not. Although I did buy the Yale Shakespeare, which were these marvelous, tiny little individual books with each of the plays. Mm-hmm. So they were fun to hold. They were fun to look at. And, and having them all lined up on your shelf was really great. So I started, I believe this is correct, with The Tempest. And so kind of a romance, kind of a comedy. And, you know, so not Hamlet, <laughs> you know, not any of the Henrys, you know, it was, let's, let's ease our way in. And I, who knows how I knew to start with The Tempest, but it was exciting enough that I kind of kept going. Oh my gosh, how fantastic. And are you still a Shakespeare fan? 
So I am still a Shakespeare fan. I have taught a course for the last 20 years called The Moral Leader. Uh, and that's a course at the Harvard Business School. And in that course, we use literature, uh, novels, plays, historical accounts to help students figure out what they think moral leadership consists of. And part of why I wanted to teach the course, why I was thrilled to be asked to teach it, uh, so I was like the fifth person to have taught the course, was because I do think that literature opens us up to other people's perspectives. Uh, and one of the things that I love about it, unlike a case, which we teach all the time at HBS, is this is not like, what would you do? But what did the butler do in the remains of the day? Why did he do those things? What do you make of what he did? Uh, and so there's something about studying other people's actions that helps us form our judgments. Uh, and so it's a really powerful pedagogy. I wrote a couple of books about it, mostly because I wanted other people to try to teach this way. Uh, and so, so, so I've always been a literature lover and continue to be. Oh, my goodness. All right. We will need to put some other links in the show notes, not just to your most recent book, but some of the others, because that, that sounds like an incredible program. Firstly, having a program called Moral Leadership or The Moral Leader, how fabulous and what an incredible way to approach it to get people thinking about those things. Is it taught online or is it only face-to-face? It's only face-to-face, right? but, but there is a, a teacher's guide, right? Uh-huh. All the tricks are revealed as well as a student textbook with all of the background on each of the things we read. Uh, so you can sort of read along with the course, but it's unfortunately not at mine, at least not at this point. Oh, well, at, one, at some stage in the future, I am hoping the world will open up again and we may well be able to get to different shores, but that is not today. Fantastic. Oh, that is... There is a whole other conversation there around moral leadership, Sandra. We might have to have you back to talk about that. And indeed, it probably connects to our topic for today, which is around trust, because you have literally written the book about trust. And so for the Take On Board community, which is predominantly people who are in the boardroom, what is trust and why is it important that boards really know and understand what it's about? So we usually think of trust as some kind of like social glue. You know, trust is the thing that holds us all together. But when you study companies and boards or listen to philosophers or social scientists, trust is vulnerability. So when we trust, we are making willing to make ourselves vulnerable, sometimes not so willingly, to an organization or a person who does something we can't do for ourselves. And because we're relying on them to do that, uh, we count on their ability to do what it is that we're asking them to do, and also their good intentions toward us. Trust is this combination of competence, meaning I have to be able to do the thing to have Helia run a great conversation, uh, as she's doing now, and then also that Helia is not going to like sandbag me, you know, and ask me some question where I'm going to look like an idiot or sound like an idiot because it's a podcast. So, so trust is vulnerability, and it's really useful for boards to have that perspective. Because as boards, we don't honestly spend that much time thinking about how vulnerable customers are to the decisions that the companies make, employees are to the decisions that companies make, the communities are to the decisions that companies make. And so understanding, and to me, the board is actually in kind of the cat seat here, uh, and it's come sort of late to the trust conversation. 
so which is largely focused on how companies should think about this. Mm. Uh, but the longer I studied it, talked to other people who study it, uh, it seems like that the scope of what companies are now expected to do is so much broader than it has been in the past that the responsibility really starts to move up to the board level. So if you say this company has an impact on the environment, you're not gonna sort of hold just the company responsible. Uh, it's who's the people with fiduciary duties to be actually looking out for the interests of other people. And so I've always thought of boards as kind of the linchpin between the inside and the outside. The board is there to represent the interests of other people as they do their work. Yes. And indeed, I think even the kind of other people that boards represent or other voice of has probably got broader over the years as well. It used to very, well, not very clearly be shareholders, but used to be much more focused on shareholders, whereas now the stakeholders that boards need to consider is much broader as well. So, I, I, and I'm guessing that also impacts then on that vulnerability and trust relationship. Right. So we did write an article, my co-author, Shanine Gupta and I, uh, about the Boeing board sued by shareholders, basically for trading profits for ethics. So, you know, if you dig into the Boeing crashes, and I've spent a long time reading about them and trying to understand what happened, the Boeing company made a bet that instead of designing an entirely new plane, this is their workhorse. This, most of their revenues come from the 737 plane. But in the beginning, they said that's going to take too long and cost too much. And so we're going to repurpose our original plane, which at that point was like four decades old, mm -hmm. uh, and try to build it. And what they ended up building was a kind of a, a workaround, which had this unrealistic expectation that pilots could recover in four seconds from a system malfunction. All right. So where's the board in all of this? Yeah. Right, so the first question is, you know, in the beginning, to me, it's a strategy question for the board, you know, well, do we start from scratch or do we actually repurpose an old plane? And you can imagine the conversation that must take place mm -hmm. about the trade-off time, money, uncertainty, you know, and all of that. But nonetheless, that initiating moment is a moment for board guidance. And then it's sort of who's keeping tabs on how this thing is unfolding. Uh, and when you look at how the board failed, uh, it had no safety mandate. So there was no committee of, on safety for the board. The risk committee uh, actually just looked at financial risk. It had no mandate. I was just about to ask about this because as you were talking through, I'm like, well, risk, surely. But it, so there was no, no attention paid to non-financial risk at all at the board level. It's certainly not with respect to... I might never be able to fly again. Yeah, it takes your breath away. And that's not how other airlines operate and how their boards operate. And, and so, you know, one of these obvious things is, well, you have to have a committee structure that matches your industry. So if I'm in the business of producing planes, you know, safety has got to be a board matter. Uh, and then you compound that by the fact that they had a number of ex-government officials, no one on the board with deep background in engineering uh, who could sort of spot some of these issues. So then there's a kind of a selection issue of who do you bring on your board. And boards need to augment its own expertise all the time. Right, so you never have everybody you need around the table, uh, but there wasn't an awareness that they actually needed to supplement their lack of understanding 
with guidance from investors or someone who could come in, someone who could help them get smarter about this. So boards have a deep role to play in these fundamental decisions that are made by companies. It's not on the margins, and it really is part of your fiduciary duties uh, in terms of looking at the interest of the greater good, because our duty as board members is to the corporation Mm. and not to the management. In fact, I would say a key part of the role is to test the management. You are that kind of annoying, it should be annoying, but it should be annoying in a good way, voice in their ear saying, have you thought about this? Or what about that? Oh, I'm not so sure. Can you convince me? Exactly. Exactly. So if you go back to this notion that trust is vulnerability, the board has a responsibility uh, and the capacity to second guess the company. And to really start to say, you know, are we really attending to these interests? You know, I'm a mining company. (laughs) You know, how do the stakeholders who care about the environment feel about the work I'm doing? And so our model has four dimensions of trust. Uh, The first is that you have to be competent because why would anyone trust you if you're not? Uh, And then there are a whole series of things kind of in the moral domain. The next thing that we care about is what are your motives? Right. Uh, why do you do what you do? And, and, and as realists, as people, what we say is, well, whose interests are you serving mm. is the way we judge motives. And so you referenced a minute ago what it was like when the only interests we had to worry about were sh- shareholders. It's a different world now. And so we want to see some balancing of stakeholders' interests. The third element is, is sort of moral means. It, it's how fair are you and how you go about doing business. And that's all the way from antitrust kinds of things to being either a good actor or a bad actor in your industry, and also how you treat your employees and are you fair. And so that matters. But the last thing, and this is where Boeing really got caught, we care about impact. So it's not just purpose. It's like purpose to me is part of motives. You know, here's what I'm trying to do. Uh, but if I'm evaluating a company or in a board of that company, it's like, what's the on the ground impact of your actions? Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I'm going to look for and hold you accountable for, no matter what you say. Mm-hmm. I didn't intend that. And so part of the trust thing is, do you take responsibility for unintended impacts? Absolutely. Yeah. So Boeing clearly didn't get it right in that regard in a number of ways because I know part of your book is about how companies regain trust. Have Boeing managed to get themselves out of this or have they remained in the hole? What I'm, I'm assuming they know that they have lost the trust of people. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's part of their just running on through and think the finances look okay so everything is okay. But if they've had that realisation, what, what, what did they do next? So it turns out there's a process for trust recovery, your own kind of process, and it's got three steps to it. Uh, step one is you first have to apologize. I did something wrong. I'm acknowledging that I did something wrong. Uh, and there's even a format. So there's a whole literature, academic literature on apologies. You know, a good apology, it takes responsibility. I did something wrong. It offers an explanation. Here's mm-hmm. why. Here's how I understand how this happened. And then there's an offer of repair. 
Here's what I'm going to do to fix going forward. So a good apology has those three elements. So when Dennis Mullenberg, who was the CEO at the time, he took you know weeks after the second crash to even acknowledge the harm. And when he did, it honestly was corporate speak in a way that was just awful to watch. So, so the first step is apology. The second is you have to hold people accountable. And you know, organizations, companies are not democracies. You know, they are hierarchies. And we reasonably say, well, on whose watch did this occur? Mm -hmm. uh, and so Mullenberg was allowed to stay on board through this entire process. And you could say, well, if he were part of the solution, if he were actively trying to figure out what went wrong, what can we do better? Then you'd say, okay, that's a CEO who's worth holding. But if I'm a board and I'm watching this guy and all he does is make excuses and tell me things are not as bad as I think they are and that they're going to get better in ways that I don't understand how, then I'm going to say, okay, this might not be a guy worth serving. And there's literature that suggests that you can actually punish someone and people feel pretty okay about that. You don't have to terminate everyone, but you do have to hold people accountable. And that's really important. So that's step two. And then step three is you need to go back into the world of now I have to fix what went wrong. Yes. You know, what exactly happened here? And there, unfortunately, Boeing continues to have a stream of news articles about its manufacturing and the fact that this is now for the Dreamliner at 787. Uh, and it continues to be challenged by the regulators saying, we don't think that you're taking this stuff seriously enough. You know, so if you were on the Boeing board, you know, not good, but uh, you can imagine a good board kind of saying, okay, I get it. We apologize. We have to figure out who's accountable and what we're going to do about that. And then we have to dig in and figure out what went wrong so we don't do this again. And those, that's a logical process that business people would understand. It's not like a mystery. And I think part of that figure out who's accountable is turning the mirror around on yourselves as round. I mean, the CEO, obviously, you know, may have had some responsibility in that, but as did the board. If the board does not consider non-financial risk, that is actually a board responsibility. So in thinking about accountability, it might be yourself and it might be your time to uh, be accountable at exit stage left or otherwise repair what's happened as well. Yeah, and I, I think that that's where, so the guy who succeeded Dennis Mullenberg is David Calhoun and he was the lead director mm -hmm. when all of this was happening. Okay, so what do we make of that? Right. Is this like a new regime? Uh, if he was the guy who was actually the lead on the board during the time that this was happening, I can understand why people would turn to him to succeed Mullenberg. But if I were an outsider or a shareholder, I kind of go, I'm that's not enough distance between this issue. Someday he's going to come find me and hate me for saying these things on, you know, <laughs> about him. But it makes me really nervous, right, that he's there. And, um, you know, again, Australia, you can't fly anywhere at the moment. But uh, I'm interested, when you fly, who do you fly with? Uh, so I actually am about to take my first post-COVID uh, trip uh, happily to Lake Tahoe in Nevada, and I'm going to go on American Airlines, and I'm praying that it's not a Boeing plane. Vulnerability is not talked about in the boardroom very much because, again, that is something that people need to bring themselves. Trust is almost like what others do. Vulnerability is something you need to do. And I'm not sure it's talked about in the boardroom, or if it is, it's certainly not talked about as much as it should be. So I'm wondering on the other side of this trust barometer, who's doing it well? 
who are the organisations and which boardrooms maybe can you point to that are doing this well? So uh, candidly, I'm early days in my search for best practice, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a sincere search. So if any of your listeners wow. <laughs> say, I am a good board, I think Sandra should come and study us, you know, let me know because oh. I am eager to hear about what good boards are like. I, I want to tell you a story really quickly about a board that I think did a brilliant thing, yeah. uh, but I'm deeply interested in connecting with people on boards for this research around boards. Oh my God, brilliant. All right, take on board community. You've heard the call. If you've got, <laughs> I'll be a little bit sad if there's no responses to this, Sandra, but if you're in an organisation, if you're in the boardroom where trust and vulnerability work together well, folks, get in touch. We'll put Sandra's details in the show notes, but my details are always there if you're out for a walk and you can't get to the show notes quick enough and I can forward it through to Sandra. So um, we'll see what we can do for you. All right, so here's a very quick story on a a board that actually rose to the occasion. So it's a story about Nokia, that poor benighted company, uh, and its need to take a layoff when it was getting outcompeted in the smartphone mobile market. Uh, And it was a huge layoff. It's 18,000 people spread across 13 countries. And they had had a disastrous layoff several years before. And the chairman, Jorma Olila, basically said, not another Bochum. He was referring to a city in Germany where they had this really lousy layoff. And so they came up with a bet on trust. And the trust was, we believe that we can tell our people, you're going to lose your job in two years, but you will stay with us because we're going to do everything in our power to help you get employed when you leave. And the people who put this program together were smart enough to say, we better go to the board (laughs) and make sure that the board actually is on board with this approach, because we're going to prioritize the interests of employees who are leaving. We're going to spend money on their behalf. We're going to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do when you're restructuring. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they came to the board. The board backed them entirely. And the result was that Uh, out of the 60% of the 18,000 people spread across 13 countries knew their next step the day they left the firm. Now, I have studied layoffs for decades, and there is nothing like that in terms of the performance of a company being able to help people get reemployed. This is a board kind of stepping up and saying, okay, we get it. This is something that requires our permission. And I think that that's actually where boards are going to be really helpful because company leaders need to know that taking a stakeholder perspective is actually sanctioned by the board. And right now, compensation doesn't seem to flow that way. Uh, So if I'm still being compensated on share price, then the board is sending me a kind of mixed message. Stakeholders are important, but by the way, your compensation uh, is only going to come from share price and what you do with it. So this to me is a very serious issue for boards to contend with, uh, which is if we really care about this notion of stakeholder capitalism, how are we going to put together a process of incentives and messages to leadership that says, we want you to do these things? Yes. And only the board can do that. Yes. I'm wondering whether, you know, we've talked about boards of companies. I'm wondering whether... You know, for example, not-for-profit organisations or the boards of not-for-profit organisations or even those that consciously, you know, a B corporation or similar, I'm guessing they do better in terms of trust and vulnerability. 
Is is that the case or or no? So I think that if you're a board member of a non not for profit mission driven organization. Yeah. You understand and you have signed on for an organization that serves the interests of others. And so you're very good at that. I think that where those organizations have difficulty is that without the discipline of the financial side. Yes, absolutely. Really, it's hard to figure out what goodness is. You know, so I, I think that the intent is there, but I'm not sure that the lack of a financial discipline actually makes that harder. In Australia, there was a Financial Services Royal Commission in the last couple of years, which, you know, talked about how the financial service industry had lost the trust and and not done things well and not done things based on a stakeholder, uh, but only on a profit. By the same token, often there there is also a transformation in Australia of, say, the disability industry. We've introduced a national disability insurance scheme, which has a means that providers of disability services have a very different relationship with their customers and so on. I feel like there is a lot to learn from both sides. I think that the corporate world can learn a bit from purpose-driven organisations and I think purpose-driven organisations can learn from the other side. And if only there was a bit more mix in the boardroom of some of those different skills. I mean, I think we talked about capability before. Like if only there was a better mix of those skills, then maybe they would be more likely to get that balance right. I think the other thing that I would stress for your listeners is that Boards are social systems. So people have varying degrees of status. They're more or less comfortable speaking up. Mm -hmm. Uh, They kind of cede authority to certain people on certain issues. And if boards are going to be effective, they actually have to create an effective team. And that requires the ability to have decent conflict and to have even protocols like anonymous polling that help people say, you know, uh, what keeps you up at night about this company, right? So I don't have to sort of have Sandra's name all over that, but at least we can get like a bank of 12 of those and sort of say, okay, what are we worried about here? Uh, And so, so I think those kind of protocols are really important for boards to work on their own process so that they can rise to the challenge. Because when these things happen, the boards are right there and they've got to be making decisions that require them to tell the truth to each other. I think we haven't done this. I think we need to do that. And if they don't have a track record of having had those conversations before, I think it's unlikely in the heat of the moment that they'll do a whole lot better than they've done in the past. Which again says to me, it's that flip side, it's that vulnerability to be to build those relationships with your colleagues in the boardroom so that you can trust each other to have the hard conversations when you need to. Exactly. Mm. Oh, Sandra, fantastic conversation and so much in there. What are the key points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? So I I think the, the first point is that trust is a relationship of vulnerability and If, you know, the listeners did nothing more than the next time they have to make a good decision to ask themselves, will this action cause people to trust me more or trust me less? Uh, And who would trust me more or less based on what I'm going to do? So I, I think that there's a very practical way to start to frame issues through the lens of trust that would at least people say, okay, at least as an aspiration, 
you know, instead of just aiming for better financial returns, which I am a healthy believer in, I think in addition to that, this is now a goal that I think companies have and the boards have. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so using this trust lens, I think is helpful and remembering that it's because people are vulnerable when they trust you. That's why trust doesn't just lead to disappointment. That's why people feel betrayed. If you don't call me on time, you know, that I'm disappointed, you know, but if you ask me an awful question in the middle of this interview, I'm betrayed, you know, because I can't stop you. I can't call you out on that yet. You know, it's all of that stuff. So I think that kind of taking this common sense view of trust and that it's not murky. The other point I would make is that trust is specific. So I'm trusting Helia to have a great interview with me right now. I'm not trusting you to walk my dog, to feed Mm -hmm. my granddaughters, right? And so that really helps because it's not like boil the ocean time. It's like in this action, in this domain, is this gonna help us be trusted or not? And so that's why I think it's quite operational because it really is specific and not this glue that holds us all together. Yes, that is, yeah. I've got my thinking face on, folks. You can't see that, but that that's definitely planted a seed for me to think through even more deeply as well. Is there, I'm guessing it'll be your book, but you might have other resources as well, but is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Uh, So I would love for people to read the book. Uh, We tell lots of great stories. The book starts with how my co-author and I figured out we trusted each other enough to go on this venture together. Uh, And so it starts with this moment of trust in the small, you know, just between the two of us. And she's a marvelous writer, journalist. And so she found fabulous stories that would never have occurred to me outside the business domain. We learn about how the Quakers were learned to be trusted in England. We learn about Mao and the five plagues. And so the book is, it's actually a surprisingly readable book. And uh, we tried to make it funny at times because we were having a good time writing. And we also thought that the topic could be so kind of serious that we wanted it to be the kind of book where you kind of go, well, that was kind of fun to read. And I learned some stuff. So that was our goal. So I would love for people. And, you know, if you go on our website, we have this form that says, join the trust conversation. And, and that's a sincere offer for people. Tell us your trust stories, you know, say, come study me, or, you know, have you seen this article? We definitely want to sort of have people thinking about this topic. So we're looking at this as engagement. Fantastic. Well, I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well. And it's so, you know, in the back of my mind for quite some time, this is how my ideas start. And then I I think this conversation is pulling it forward. I've been thinking of having a little take on board book club where we all read a particular book and then come together and have a conversation about it. So Sandra, this is going to be the first one, folks. I'm making this up as I go, but the power of trust is going to be the first the first Take On Board book club. And we will meet in about six weeks' time from whenever this goes to air. So, folks, get the book. The first, I don't think, in my head, I don't think we can have very big conversations about the book club. So I'm going to say the first 15 people that get in touch with me who commit to reading the book and coming together in about six weeks' time, we're going to have a little book club and we're going to have a chat about it. And, Sandra, I will let you know how that conversation goes. Oh, what a spectacular idea. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, like I say, it's been in the back of my mind and this conversation, like this is the perfect book for us to start to have that conversation because boards just need to be across this more. So yeah, I will let you know how that goes. Sandra, fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for, as I said in the introduction, thank you so much for taking the call. Thank you so much for writing the book and sharing your wisdom in that way. I know it will be helpful to uh, people in the community and to our newly formed book club. So thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today at Take On Board. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation uh, and, and says you do a great job. I just, you know, a shout out to you for how well you manage this and just how much fun you make it. So thank you. Oh, pleasure. Thanks, Sandra. <laughs>